to another episode of Paranormal, The New Normal. I'm your host, as always, Jeremy, here trying to make the world seem a little more normal. And today, we might accomplish that to a degree. I have to say, I'm proud of that fact. And as always, I have a guest to help me do that. And my guest this week is Suzanne Munson, author of The Metaphysical Thomas Jefferson, which, among a couple other books that we'll talk about as well, but that's the main book we're going to be focusing on. And I got to say, I I was reading it today for a while, and I am intrigued, and I hope all my listeners will be as well. But first things first, Suzanne, how are you doing tonight? I'm great. How about yourself? Can't complain. I get to podcast. <laughs> that, that's, the, that's what makes me happy. So, <laughs> But my first question always on this show is, what got you into the paranormal slash spiritual world? Well, I've always been interested in the spiritual world, but uh, I was always connected with uh, traditional theology. I didn't veer too far away from that, the, what I had been brought up with. But it really took the death of my husband 10 years ago for me to um, really wonder what, what happens to us. Where did he go? You know, what, what is he doing? And um I would go outdoors and I would look up in, at the stars and I would say, where are you? You know, I'm not hearing anything. I wasn't getting any any signals or any signs like some people get. But um, so um, I, I went on a I was on a parallel journey uh, that started about 10 years ago. I had one foot in the traditional world of history. I was writing a traditional work of history, which was a biography of uh, Thomas Jefferson's teacher. George with that was straight history, just using material resources. And um, but then as time went on, I um, met some spiritual people who were, I guess you would say, thinking out of the box. Um, and uh, I met some mediums and um, I, I went to a writer's retreat. And one of the writers had written a book called Friends in High Places, which was kind of cute, I thought. And uh, she was she was a ghostbuster and uh, a medium, an amateur medium. She uh, didn't charge for her work. So I asked her if she would. And this was six months after my husband died. I asked her if she could um, channel him. And she said, uh, probably. So she went in her room with a yellow notepad and came back a half hour later uh, with notes that uh, and her observations were right on target. Uh, she described my husband perfectly. She'd never met him, didn't know anything about me or about him. And so um, that I thought was very interesting. I went home, told my children about it. Of course, they thought I was crazy, but uh, I, was, I was on the path by then. And um, so I am a member of a group called IONS, the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And this was formed by astronaut Edgar Mitchell who came back from uh, an experience uh, on the moon. And when he re-entered Earth's atmosphere, he had sort of an epiphany that there was a lot more going on in the universe than just the physical universe, just a bunch of rocks floating around the planets. There were um, our physical laws of the universe, but there, there are also spiritual laws. So um, in the course of attending these IONS meetings, and these are these meetings are really out of the box. The the uh, the topics that we discuss are um, all over the place. They're fascinating, and um, <laughs> we um, were meeting in the basement of a, Black, a Baptist church one time. And I thought, if these people knew what we were talking about, <laughs> they'd probably run us out of the church. But um, anyway, so one of the speakers was a woman, uh, Irene Kendig, who had written a book about the readings of a medium. Her name is Jana Anna. And the book was called um, uh, Conversations with Jerry and Seven Others I Thought Were Dead. And so the author uh, was a skeptic at the time, but she um, had a number of sessions with this medium and, and wrote, uh, recorded the sessions and wrote a book about them. Uh, seven people who had died that she talked to. Anyway, she became convinced uh, she had uh, a difficult relationship with her mother and, and the uh, chapter about her mother was really interesting. So I thought, well, um, if 
I'll just call this woman. And I got up my nerve to call her. I was nervous about it, as most people are when, when they talk to a medium for the first time. And uh, so I asked for my late husband and um, came through. And I began asking for friends and other people. And they were coming through. So I would invite some of my other friends over for a session. We had a dear friend who died. And so I told my friend Debbie, I said, Debbie, come over here. We're going to dial up Phoebe. <laughs> and so I've made an appointment with the medium. And so my friend Debbie and I um, accessed our friend Phoebe. And during the course of the conversation, the medium who had never met my friend Debbie said, Debbie, do you have a brother? And she said, yes. And the medium said, he needs you right now. And so she got in her car and um, her brother called and he said, I need you. Um, and his daughter had been diagnosed with cancer. So there were those things that went on that um, opened my uh, eyes and opened my windows to a different point of view. And um, so leading up to Thomas Jefferson, I had already written about him in my first book about his mentor. That book is called Jefferson's Godfather, uh, about his mentor, George Wythe. So I knew a lot about Jefferson's early life. And um, that's, well, I had to have the name of Jefferson in the book title or nobody would read it. So <laughs> I titled it Jefferson's Godfather, although it was a biography of George Wythe. Anyway, um, so I thought, um, well, if I can talk to regular people, you know, why not somebody famous? Why not Thomas Jefferson? And this was during COVID, you know, when I had time on my hands. And um, so um, I wondered, well, is he too busy to talk to me or too important to talk to me? I mean, I do have a speaking acquaintance with his life, having written about it. So I uh, made an appointment with a medium. I didn't tell her in advance who I wanted to access. Um, I did ask her how much she knew about Jefferson a little bit later. And she said just that he had written the Declaration of Independence, but she was not a student of history. She didn't like history in school. Uh -huh. she, would, she majored in elementary education. So you read part of the book. Uh, that What came forth is very profound. Somebody who hates history could not have come up with that. And um, so I say there are only three ways of looking at the book that I wrote uh, from my eight or nine sessions with Thomas Jefferson in spirit. The first um, assumption is, is, you, uh, is that I wrote the book. I have the recordings that show clearly that I'm the one asking the questions. I'm not providing the answers. The answers are coming through the medium. Uh, the second assumption is that the, the medium made it all up. Well, if you talk to this lady, she's a perfectly nice lady, but she's not an historian. And then the third um, option is uh, we are hearing from somebody who claims he's Thomas Jefferson from the other side through uh, an experienced and trustworthy medium. Which, I mean, personally, from what I read, I would think it's the third option because and it does it almost seems to me like it couldn't be like a spirit trying to impersonate jefferson because the writing's too unique to things i've read about jefferson in the past or actual works that jefferson wrote that i've read copies of in the past like it's it's it's, it's very slim, similar to what he would write and like what he would say about certain things oh yes which we'll, which we'll get into in a bit but mm -hmm. so i mean his mentor though um was his mentor that interesting of a person, though, his godfather? He's called the, some people call him the forgotten founding father mm -hmm. uh, because he didn't run for national office. He, you know, he wasn't president. He might have been elected president. He was very uh, beloved, uh, but he chose to be a teacher. He was um, uh, America's first law professor. So oh, he okay. chose a life in Virginia because at that time, Virginia was uh, the largest, uh, richest, and most powerful state in, in America. And so to be a big, big wig in Virginia was, you know, to, to be on the national stage. And he chose to devote public service to his, his country, Virginia. Yeah. Which I, back then that was very important. Right. 
and, and and there wasn't a lot of people like today that could practice law back then. So yeah, they were very ex, ex, esteemed gentlemen that did it. Yeah, he could have been on the Supreme Court and made a big difference on the Supreme Court. But at that time, uh, that was not nearly as important as the Virginia Supreme Court. So he chose to stay at the court level. He was a chancery court judge for the state of Virginia, as well as America's first law professor. And was that at? um, William and Mary, the College of William and Mary. Okay, okay. I was going to say, I know there's only a few back then, but there was... I was thinking Harvard for a second, but I was like, no, that's too far north, probably. Well, Harvard was the first college in America yeah. and followed not uh, not too long after that by William and Mary. But William and Mary's law school predated Harvard's by three decades. Huh. That's interesting. Didn't know that. Well, Harvard says oldest law school in America. And then in the fine print, it says in continuous existence. <laughs> that's their claim to fame. Ah, uh, makes more sense now. But so, well, I mean, the the part of this book that really pulled me in right away and I actually read the whole section of it was his thoughts on the different founding fathers based on what we know about them now, on, based on what history tells us and people who wrote that history, which I'm using that phrasing very purposely because it's everybody knows history is changed all the time by people who write it because they want to make it sound a certain way. Right. They may not they may not change the facts, but they're changing the way it comes across so people can form their own opinions. But so I mean I mean the one that really threw me was Benjamin Franklin. Because personally, I know a lot about Benjamin Franklin and I or at least I believe I do as far but I may not, but and I would I would have asked Jefferson if he really was like the ladies man that all this other media portrays him as. Like I, I wonder if he really was much of the ladies' man as like other media's have portrayed him as over the last decade. So, I mean, that's that's why I was curious about what Benjamin Franklin was. And well, Jefferson would have known him in the context of forming the government in, in government circles, in very serious circles of discussion. And so he said that that Franklin, I think, was noted for a sense of humor. And so he, uh, Jefferson said that really was an asset to their discussions. There are very heavy discussions about the future government of America. That he would sometimes, Franklin would sometimes go off on these little tangents. They'd have to bring him back. But that he always brought some levity to the discussions. And um, that he was a very good person in, in um, not exactly an argument, but a debate that he would never be confrontational. He had a line of questioning uh, in the discussion. And eventually he'd bring somebody around to his way of thinking, but only in a very roundabout way by asking the right questions. And uh, I think we can all learn from that example. Yeah. I've, yeah, I've, I've seen him, I've seen him portrayed as that as well, that he was a very, the way he wasn't a direct man. Like he liked to tell like, his little side stories and stuff to get to the point of certain things. I mean, that's just, I mean, a lot of this is a lot of this, as far as Franklin goes, is based to me on a video game series, but the people who make the video game series research history dramatically to make it accurate. So I, what, I mean, there's full documents they have in the game that you find that are exact copies of documents and the real words on them. So it's, they, they do a good job of it, but so and for anybody who not who doesn't know that game series is Assassin's Creed, they do, Ubisoft does an amazing job with those. But yeah, well, as long as they stick to history and and do it right, you know, I I, I just am very disappointed when people take uh, um, too many liberties with the facts. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm the same way. Unless it's supposed to be like a comedy type thing, then that's different. I am personally not a I I liked Hamilton by didn't like how they changed the history in it so much or like they painted the way the history seemed to happen so much but i'm not i like that that part in the book amused me too that franklin i mean that jefferson knew that it was a musical yes like that that amused me that i was in there i was like oh i'm like i wasn't expecting to see this in this book yeah so. well neither was i that that part was pretty funny um so what what i did was i had a chapter on his views of other various other founding fathers. 
And of course we had to throw Hamilton in there. And um, what I learned, and, and I didn't know this because I'd never talked to an historic figure in spirit before, of course. but um, he's not um, the person that he left earth uh, uh, on July 4th, 1826. I mean, he's this, same uh, spirit, more or less, but but he's very current about our current events. He watches. Uh, he's in the Hall of Congress, Halls of Congress, and um, he's at the University of Virginia, the school that he founded. He knows what's going on, and he uses some modern terminology, which I have to explain in the book. Um, you know, if, if I wrote the book, I'd never use modern terminology because that would be like a giveaway or something, but... Um, so when we got to Hamilton, he was aware that Hamilton is in a play. And he said, who knew that he would become a song and dance man? Which I thought was amusing. Yeah, that line said, kind of made me Yeah, trouble. And he said, I hope nobody turns me into a song and dance man. And I said, well, guess what? You better see the play because you're in it. <laughs> Singing and dancing. But he said yeah. it was play was okay that it... Um, it veered from facts in many places, but if it got people interested in history, if it gave amusement to people, then that was okay. Which is a very level-headed way of thinking about it, even for spirit, because I mean, that he could easily go haunt that play if he wanted to, <laughs> just to make sure that no one wanted to go back to it. But right, I mean, yeah, I'm just, yeah, I didn't like how they changed the history. I mean, the I'm a, I like musicals, so the play, like the whole idea itself, is actually pretty funny. But I just, man, the way they changed the history is based on facts I knew was just like, really, you're gonna try that? He said he thought Hamilton might be a little embarrassed by, it, but possibly, um, yeah. But it was probably harmless. Yeah, I mean, um, all the founding fathers, as far as I know, all like to have a good jest once in a while, based on things that they've they've all written. So. That's right. But, and I, I like his take on George Washington as well. The idea that Washington had PTSD was truly like, it's not something you would, it's not something you think about. Like you wouldn't think like, oh, here's a flying father. He didn't have PTSD. No way. He was right. probably a, a manly man who could take it because he did it for so long. And that's right. It's just, when you hear that, it's like, wow, like that's surprising. Yeah. Well, he, he does say that, the public and historians have made frozen icons of the founding fathers, that they were all flesh and, and blood people. They all had their foibles and their faults. And um, he said that uh, Washington, he was in Washington's cabinet, so he did interact with him. Yeah. And he said that um, Washington suffered, and here he used a modern term, he said what you would call post-PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, because he had not been in, ju in just one war. He'd been in two bloody wars. Yeah. He'd been in the French and Indian War and the Revolution. He'd seen a lot of guts and gore, a lot of hardship, and um, and that did affect him. And, um, of course, he carried on, Washington carried on his duties very dutifully and did a beautiful job with it But um, and retired when he should have retired. But... Uh, in in private and in, in meetings with Jefferson, Jefferson said that he his mind would wander a bit and that he he wasn't present all the time. Yeah, which I mean, it's understandable. I mean, he went through a lot, and besides those two wars, he was in plenty of other little battles here and there, depend with conflicts with the Native Americans and just doing basically what he was told to do originally by the British, but. It's just, yeah, it, it was a rough time to live. I mean, until the yes. last hundred, until the last hundred years or so, it's been, it was a rough time to live in America. That's but, right. And just, so, I mean, but it just humanized Washington in such a way that I was like, oh my God, like I never thought about it that way. Like that would make sense. Yes. But they were flesh and blood people with, with their faults, their weaknesses, but they did achieve greatness in their time. Yes, they did. And I mean, the John Adams part, too, where he talks about how devoted he was to his wife and everything. 
Like I, like that's a known fact somewhat, but the way he expanded on the idea of it was just like mind blowing. Yes. I, I, well, I might get really weird on you. I haven't said this in any of my other interviews, but um, I'm doing another book about um, America's first law school. And, um, but, and that's purely history. Yeah. But when, when I had a session with, uh, with the medium on another topic, she said that there was a spirit who was intervening, an uninvited spirit, somebody I hadn't asked for, who was kind of barging in. <laughs> and she didn't know who, who that was. But she said it looked like, it seemed to her, it was a colonial woman. And, um, and the spirit went on and on and on about how women were marginalized during that time and um, how she spoke out. And of course, her letters to Adams, she's considered just as smart as her husband. She's a very smart woman. Oh, yeah. Um, anyway, so she went on and on about uh, women speaking up and you need to listen to them and everything. And remember, she wrote that very famous letter uh, uh, to the men. Remember the ladies when you're get, granting votes and independence to all these other people. Remember the ladies. And she talked about the tyranny of being ruled by men, not having any legal rights at the time. Anyway, so I said, um, well, it sounds like Abigail Adams. Is that Abigail Adams? And the um, medium said, uh, well, I think so. That, that energy is really coming through very strongly that it is. So I wrote all that down and and I included what she said in in my this other book that I'm going to publish this year, which is straight history. And I, I can't put any woo woo stuff in that. But uh, I just used some letters that she had written on that subject. And I included her in that in that book, along with all the men. It's it's a male oriented book, of course. Yeah. Which I mean, it's kind of ironic but sad that nobody listened to her really because women's rights were still not granted for a long long time after that i mean they didn't get to vote until 18 something i believe 1920 oh i oh, I, thought that, I thought 1920 was the all the other all the other rights not, not the voting one i thought they already had that by that point but god that's even worse that's so much <laughs> worse to almost 200 years later like wow yeah Took a while. Uh, the black men had the vote way sooner than than white women. Yeah, which I mean, and, I, and, that, and that kind of brings us to the uh, chapter that I was just starting to get into. But then I looked at the clock. I was like, oh, God, we'll get this started. But I was getting into the chapter on where he what he was saying about slavery and race relations. And so I didn't get to read all of it. But did he talk about how like his because I mean, he did. Jefferson did own slaves. It's something that everybody knows nowadays because shows make fun of it and whatnot and shows right. like make commentary on it. But so did he have what were his feelings on it? I'm, that's that's the one thing I'm dying of curiosity about. Well, he did kind of a mea culpa that he, uh, you know, should have freed them, but he had other things on his mind. And um, his he said he was a product of his time. Now, yeah. what, what a lot of people don't realize, they a lot of people just think, well, he's just your average slave owner, and, and he never even thought about freeing the slaves. He really did. When he was a young man, before he had to run his farm, um, he was an abolitionist, and he, he proposed some bills to end slavery gradually. And they were shouted down by the establishment. Uh, it was very embarrassing. And any, any measure to uh, free slaves... It got worse and worse and worse as time went on. And so by the time maybe Jefferson could free his slaves in the early 1800s, um, a freed slave did not have the best life. Yeah. And you, in Virginia, you had to leave the state. You had to leave your family and friends and go somewhere else if you were free. They didn't want the freed slaves around uh, causing trouble with the, those who were still enslaved. Yeah. And, um, 
and life was was pretty dicey because there were not that many jobs. Uh, the white people didn't want to work with with black people or the former slave. So life on the outside was not all that great at the time if you did free your slaves. Now, he, there, there's all kinds of excuses that he had for not freeing them. Um, economically, he couldn't afford to because his farming operations and some loans that he had out and some bad debts that he had assumed. He was not a wealthy man. Now, George Washington was a wealthy man and he could free his slaves. As soon as his wife died, um, th those slaves were free. But Jefferson couldn't do that because he would basically at the end of his life, he was a poor man because you were not paid well in public service. And he yeah. had, while he was away all that time in public service, probably his farming operations suffered a bit. And then there's bad weather patterns, bad um, economic situations. So his slaves were his only collateral, but he doesn't make excuses for that. But he does say that he, so I asked him about how did he feel about uh, people of color at his university? Because he never would have, he said he would never have dreamed of that. He said, honestly, I, I could never have dreamed that the people working for me could go to college. And then he also said women were so disenfranchised that people didn't think that they had uh, the level of intellect that men did. And they were never taken very seriously, anything they said. And so having both women and people of color at the university was, was a, you know, a, a major event in the last century. And uh, but he said that he had, had come to terms with all that, that he had to really think about it quite a lot. But in his present state, he uh, was very, very glad that there are uh, people of color and there are women at his university and he wishes everybody well. But he was product of the 18th century. And um, it's kind of his excuse, but he should have freed him. You know, if he could have, he should have. But he didn't. And. So my take on that is, you know, owning slaves, let's call it a sin. It's a sin. But we're all sinners, you know, but there were other things that he did that were great and shouldn't be forgotten simply because he was a sinner in that regard. What do you mean? Yeah, I mean, he was a man of the times and that by all means doesn't make it 100% right, but still that's. A legitimate excuse because at that time most of the people in america that could afford it had slaves that's right i mean it's just the way it was and i mean it's in america it wasn't only that way in america it was that way in other countries as well back then so yeah it, well it was the basis of wealth cheap labor was the basis yeah. and the um the north was tied up in it too the um they call it the lords of the loom and the lords of the lash the lords of the loom in new england with the textile mills needed that cotton that was produced by the lash, by the slaves. Yeah, yeah which, I mean, yeah, it's a sad evil. That's all it is. It's a sad evil that had to exist, though, in order to get to where we are today. Well, uh, Jefferson predicted that bloodshed would probably uh, evolve from that. It correctly predicted that. And, yeah. um, and it did. It took a civil war to to change that. Uh, it, yeah. uh, some people say, oh, it would have gone, slavery would have gone away, you know, because of the cotton gin and all these other things. Well, I, I have a whole chapter on slavery in my first book, which is called Jefferson's Godfather. And in this book, the metaphysical Thomas Jefferson go into that. No, slavery was entrenched in America. So people yeah. are not going to let it go. Plus, they were afraid of several million black people, you know, running loose. Uh, on the country, you know, with no jobs or, and, you know, just no structure. And they, they were, there was a lot of fear. It was all fear-based. Yeah, of course. They, I mean, a lot of things back then were fear-based. I mean, uh, actually on this show, we, well, not on the show, my other paranormal show, we just did a fearsome critters bracket, which is all the creatures they made up in the 17, 1800s to explain simple things in the forest. But it's yeah. it's inter it's interesting the ideas they came up with about these crazy creatures that just have literally like it would be the sound of a it'd be the sound of the wind blowing through trees and they think it's a wild animal of some kind. It's just so humorous in a way. But 
Yeah, well, they were the very first people in this country, particularly the ones in New England, were very superstitious. They thought there was a witch or a devil behind every tree. Yeah, which I mean, that's actually that's actually something I never actually read about Jefferson is what his thoughts. I mean, I know what happened before him, but his thoughts on the Salem witch trials, like I never read anything with him actually talking about that. I I didn't get into any of that. I'm sure he yeah. thought it was uh, terrible. Well, I mean, I know he was also for religious freedom and he fought for it. Yes. Like, and you did get into that a little bit. Yes. Oh, yes. He, um, people thought he was an atheist or a deist. He, he actually admired Jesus Christ very, very much, but he did not admire organized religion. He had been in France as ambassador to France. He had seen the, the corruption of the church in Europe over many, many centuries. And he did not want that for uh, America. And, um, but he, and he said from spirit that uh, the, the name of Jesus has power, that Jesus, uh, his essence, his spirit does exist, but that organized religion, religion n- not all of organized religion, there's, there's some good churches, who believe in kindness and generosity and humility, but there are plenty that don't that are in power, money, all that judgment. Uh, Those are the churches that he criticizes. And he says that Jesus has withdrawn his spirit from some of those churches that are about money and greed and power and judgment. Which that'd be great if that, I mean, that'd be great if that's true. Cause I mean, I, as, as the listeners of my show know, I am a, I, I, same as you, was brought up Christian, and I just, I fell away from it in my teenage years, 20s, like everybody else did, does when they want to become a rebel. And I, I mean, I now classify myself as agnostic because I, I know there's something out there. I just don't like to give it a name. I've heard too many different things from too many different people, especially on this show. So it's just one of those things for me. And, but I hate, I have a hatred for a lot of organized religion because of the way they operate and because yeah. of the scandals of the past. But I do, but there are good ones out there. I've been to churches with family members and whatnot that have, are good places where they they actually care about their people and their flock. They don't just try to get the collection plate going a couple of times every service. Yeah. You need to pick and choose. You need to be discriminating. Yeah. I mean, but like I said, I, I don't know what's out there. I'd like to think there's a overall power out there, but I don't know what to call it. And I've been told it's a lot of different things and eh, too many good, too many good chances of what it could be to really, for me to say, at least, I mean, well, we each have our path and uh, I'm still on a path, you know, of course, which, what did Jefferson think though, about the religion in today's world, how it's kind of, for a long time, it took over a lot of stuff. I mean, it's getting a little better, but like for a long time, especially 50, 60 years ago, it r- ruled everyday life. Well, he very much wanted separation of church and state. And um, we're seeing um, an, a little bit of a, some erosion of that now. Yeah. Uh, some people who feel that their religion is superior want to impose that uh, through the government through government funding uh, they want to make their religion paramount um, given it some government sanction but um, in my research I, I um, discovered that there was a huge need for that statute of religious freedom that Jefferson wrote with his mentor by the way who didn't get any credit for it but it was a team effort with George with um, Virginia uh, was founded by Protestants. Uh, now, uh, Maryland uh, had, had some Catholic influence, and New England had the um, pilgrims and those people. They were all very different. And Virginia was settled by Church of England people who had just not too uh, far uh, before then had broken with the Roman Catholic Church. And so um, 
so religion had become very, very, very politicized. And so they did not want any Catholics in Virginia. They didn't want any Quakers. They didn't want any Baptists. Um, they discriminated against Presbyterians and other people. They had draconian laws against the poor Quakers who were peace loving. And um, they wanted everybody in their own image because the, um, the Church of England in colonial days was the seat of power. The courthouses, the churches were sometimes in the very early days, they served as courthouses as well. And some of the people who were on the church vestry were also judges and it was all intertwined. And people were taxed to support the church and to support, to pay the salaries of ministers. Anyway, after the revolution, the Virginia wanted to maintain the religion of the establishment of the wealthy people. They were all um, descendants from of English people. Uh, but out in the western part of the state, you had a lot of Scotch-Irish. You had a lot of Presbyterians. And they had fought um, very vigorously in the uh, revolution. They were some of the best soldiers that we had. And they came back to their home state only to find themselves discriminated against. So there was a, uh, it, the um, George Wythe and Thomas Jefferson as a team presented the first religious freedom law to the Virginia legislature in 1779, but it wasn't acted on until 1786. And only then by the soldiers coming back and other people who were the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the others who were really feeling this rank discrimination. And so it all came to a head uh, in January in 1786 in Richmond, where I live. And um, if there hadn't been such a big fuss about it, we wouldn't have had that law, which is now a bedrock American value, you know, freedom of religion. And we yeah. have in in many cities, you'll go down a street, there'll be a Catholic church, a Protestant church, uh, a mosque, <laughs> uh, a synagogue, you know, all within a mile or two of each other. And we exist in peace for the most part. And we, we have Thomas Jefferson to thank for that, for, for championing that. Yeah. I mean, he was, he did, he did a lot of good in this country and people keep seem to put him like below Washington, Lincoln, and the ones that get the credit for a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. But I mean, but even Lincoln hesitated about freeing the slaves at first until he was basically forced to do it because of the Civil War. Yeah, it was but, all political. Oh, well, yeah, of course. Same as today. <laughs> Things are very yeah. political still to this day. And it's all about who's who's putting some cash in whose pocket basically nowadays. But well, Jefferson talks a lot about that in in the in this book, the metaphysical Thomas Jefferson. It's available on Amazon and online, Barnes and Noble. Um, he talks about how corrupt uh, things are in Washington, and not just the present uh, people there, but it goes back a long way. Um, There's a lot of graft and corruption in the 19th century in Washington as well. Yeah, and they had to pass. Uh, pass a lot of laws. There was a lot of cronyism, a lot more cronyism back then than there is allowed now. Well, yeah, because it was, it was unregulated back then. It was just mm -hmm. who's friends with who and who can grease the other's wheel, kind of. That's right. Which, which, yeah, luckily they did pass some laws about that, so I mean, it made life a little better, but we're still working to get there. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. But what do you think of the amount of colleges we have nowadays because he was a higher education man what do you think of like the amount of schools there are nowadays with the different selections and varieties of it all well there is a chapter on higher education because one of the three things that he wanted on his tombstone he, he didn't put um president of the united states or ambassador to france or any of those things uh, or vice president or secretary of state um or any of those things on his tombstone he only had three things uh, Declaration of Independence, author of the Declaration of Independence, author of the Statute for Religious Freedom, and father of the University of Virginia. He was, that was, founding the University of Virginia was probably his proudest achievement because it, um, it represented the future and his view, version, his future vision. He 
actually he wanted to mold future leaders in his political way of thinking. That was part of the agenda. But um, so I asked him about higher education and I asked him about the University of Virginia. And he said that there are still, there's some people there who adhere to his original values. He wanted a very comprehensive um, curriculum. He, he, that was one of the hallmarks of the University of Virginia. The curriculum was much broader than any other colleges. The, Harvard was, was founded to, to teach, to train preachers. And so it took Harvard a while to become a, a little bit more universal. And um, so he said that administrations, and not just UVA, but uh, many college, many universities, have become top-heavy. Um, that the the students are the ones at the bottom of the to totem pole right now, and that the administrator administrators are all about funding, all this outside funding that they're getting. It's all about raising money. And um, so much of a focus on that. And um, that the students' needs should be paid more attention to. And there should be more communication uh, from the top to the bottom, the faculty, the chief administrators to the student level. Uh, you know, how can we best serve you? And, um, of course, campuses have become very political right now. Yeah. And there's a lot of dissension now at the University of Virginia and elsewhere. Uh, but I think a, a lot of those arguments eventually are, are going to go away at some point. But um, so I asked him about um, college athletics. And this is because I have a little thing about that. I think we should go back to having student athletes and not professional athletes. And um, so you know, if the NFL wants to train football players, they ought to have their own boot camp for that. But that's just my opinion. Anyway, so so I asked him about college athletics, and he used a modern term for that. I would never have, if, if I'd written the book, I'd never would have used this term. But he said, um, cash cows. And he seemed to be aware of this recent development that um, – Football stars, well, well, athletic stars, can make money during college by adding their name to T-shirts and merchandise and so on. And he said that the original intent of college athletics is not anywhere where close to where it was in the beginning. In the beginning, the students who had those abilities, you know, would enjoy using their athletic abilities but just as part of, of living and part of enjoying life. But yeah. with the professionalism of it now, we called it um, cash cows, uh, that's that's deviated from the original purpose of athletics in school. Yeah, which I, I mean, I am not a fan of uh, sports in colleges or high schools, really. I think it, I mean, yeah, they're fine to have, but they're fine to have if, the way that he meant that he would like them, but the way they are now, it's just, I agree. It's just too much about them trying to make a buck and them taking money away from other money that can go to other parts of the school that probably need a lot more than sports do. But on the other hand, some of these people might not have gone to college at all. And so some college maybe is better than no college. If you're going to go straight into the NFL boot camp with no education, you know, that's not too good either. So anyway, yeah. that's another argument, another, another true. time. True. You think about it that way it is pretty true. And I mean, my, I do agree with that. I mean, everybody should have an education, I think, and everybody deserves a way to be able to get that. I wish we were like a lot of countries and, did, and college was free. I mean, that, it was just paid for by the government for everybody to go to college so they can get their education and contribute more to the world. Yeah. Well, he does talk about the cost being prohibitive now. He does. Yeah. Jefferson talked about that. Well, as he should. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, were colleges back then free, if I'm not mistaken, or was there, or was it just a lot lower cost based on the ratio of, over time? 
Well, um, in Virginia, tobacco was like cash. And so at the College of William and Mary, George Wythe, who taught between 1777 and 1780, 1779 and 1789, 10 years, he was paid in um, what they called hogshead, hogshead, hogsheads of tobacco, great big barrels of tobacco. And um, so that was the equivalent of cash. And so almost everybody raised tobacco back then. And uh, so that was how they were paid. And But they they had to self-pay, there were, at, at least in the very beginning. There was no government support. And um, for the University of Virginia, which opened in 1819, uh, I think the government of uh, the Virginia legislature did help some with the opening of the school, possibly with a little tuition, but still the, the boys had to uh, pay tuition. Okay, because that's what I was asking about. I, that's why that's what I was wondering if like there actually was a tuition or if it was free yeah. back then. Now Jefferson so. wanted everyone who had the uh, intellectual ability to be educated. He believed in universal education, yeah. but but colleges were for the elite, and uh, he was all about training leaders, future leaders. Yeah, which kind of on the same wavelength though. I don't know if I saw like a part of the, a part on this in your in the book at all, but. Does he talk about modern health care at all? Because, I mean, that's probably got to be, I mean, I know he has stayed current with what's going on, but health care was basically non-existent back then. Like, for a lot of things, they just would let you die. Like, so. No, we didn't get into that as a subject. Ah, that'd be, that, if you were to do a sequel, that'd be an interesting thing to see what you mm-hmm. would say about that. But, because I'm kind of curious, because, I mean, that, that would be a miracle to anybody in the 18th century to have like a hospital you can go to even just to have almost anything fixed instead of just having to suffer at home and hope you don't die. That's right. Yeah. Those are pretty rough times. If you had an illness or broke a bone. Yeah. It was just, I mean, even if you had a cavity back then, it's just, I mean, ask George Washington, the, your teeth is not going to get knocked back out, but it just, uh, I, I couldn't imagine them like that with like teeth just rotting away that you can't do anything about. Oh, I know. I, I'm thankful every day that, that I live now and not 200 years ago. Yeah. I mean, I would have rather lived in like the fifties or sixties, but that's me. <laughs> but <laughs> personally, I always say I'm born too late, but maybe it's a past life or something that was back then that I enjoyed or something possible. So why don't we kind of, wrap this up by you, by me asking what is Jefferson's overall advice on how, on what need, the world needs to change nowadays in order to become a better place? Okay, that's a good question. Um, so he he went on and on and on about what was wrong with our government today, the corruption, self-dealing, and so on. And that people were serving, the, our representatives were serving themselves and not serving the people. And so finally I said, um, well, Uh, what's the answer? And he said, there needs to be uh, another revolution, but not the bloody kind. Okay. I was going to (laughs) say. And he said, it needs to be a a revolution of integrity. And um, so I said, well, what would you do if you were president right now? Sort of put him on the spot. And he said, "Um, if I were president right now, there's very little that I could there, there would be very few reforms that I could implement because I wouldn't have that many people behind me. I'd just be out there by myself. He said, you have to wait till you gather enough people behind you to make a difference. So he said, I'd probably um, enter Congress instead, and I would form, and this is what people should be doing who are in Congress, uh, form circles of integrity, a small number of people with integrity who want to serve the public uh, more so than serving themselves, who value the truth, who, who value good work. And then you would gradually expand those circles of integrity until you had a group that was large enough to make the reforms that should be made. Campaign financing being one, he says there's way too much money 
uh, from the, he didn't use the word dark forces, but that's what he meant in, um, in our elections. He said, we need to get back to um, handshaking. The candidates who want to run for office, they need to get out and shake hands with the people. And um, he said, right now, the way most elections are won is through big money and slick advertising, these pieces that come in the mail that distort the truth or act or out and out lie. Um, he said, you know, we, we need to, he said, we, we need to be more independent thinkers uh, in this world, uh, as in America, that people are kind of swallowing what they're told without examining it. And he said, he craves critical thinking on this planet that um, people are not being critical thinkers. They're just going along with the party line and um, not being independent. Yeah. Which I mean, a third party can never make it to presidency these days because there's too many people that have to be red or blue. They can't think a different way even. And it's all about money. You you need a huge amount of money to to launch a third party. Yeah, which, and a lot of them don't have it. And mm -hmm. the ones that do, it's they get maybe ten percent of the vote if they're lucky. So it's just sad. But where can people find you? Where can they find your book? Where can they buy it? Check it out. Basically, sell your book. <laughs> <laughs> well, the book is called The Metaphysical Thomas Jefferson. And it's available on Amazon. My name is Suzanne Munson, M-U-N-S-O-N. And I have uh, two books on Amazon now. I, I hope by the end of this year, I'll have three more up there. I hope I'll have five up by the end of this year. And um, the other one is called Jefferson's Godfather. And that's the one about Jefferson and his teacher, George With. But the one that we've been talking about tonight is the metaphysical Thomas Jefferson. If you don't like to use Amazon, it is um, available on online Barnes and Noble, not in the stores, but online. This is an online product. Yeah. Well, it's been an honor having you on, Suzanne. And I learned a lot tonight about history, which I love as a history lover myself. I don't even like to call myself a history buff anymore because I've been, I got kids and dogs. I don't have time to sit around and like really read anymore or do anything between the podcasting and my real job. Well, so, your job is to be a good parent. So I'm sure you're doing that. Trying to. <laughs> trying. <laughs> but I thank you for coming on. All my all my thank listeners you, Jeremy. Know, all my listeners know where you can find me. And I will be back in half a week. Have a good half week, everybody. Good. And I I'll, will see you next time. I'll tune in. And Suzanne, thank you once again. It's been an honor. Good night.